0: Welcome to Living Southern Oregon, a podcast dedicated to discovering and exploring all Southern Oregon has to offer. I'm your host, Simona Fino, and I will be introducing you to the people who live here, the things they love, and what makes Southern Oregon a magical place to call home. Welcome everyone to Living Southern Oregon. Today I have with me Chris Hardy. Chris has been involved in the Southern Oregon farm community since 2005 in many renditions of education and activism. He discovered a multinational chemical company producing GMO sugar beets throughout the Rogue Valley, which led to a grassroots effort successfully banning genetically engineered crops from Josephine and Jackson counties. Since then, Chris has been deeply immersed in the seed world and education. He is deeply involved in the importance of seed diversity, food culture, community education around regenerative and climate resilient farming models, including his work trialing rare heritage grains and collaboration with local farmers. All right, welcome Chris. I'm so happy to be here with you out in the middle of your farm. So listeners, if you're hearing some wind and some birds and a little bit of traffic in the background because we're out here on this gorgeous farm, looking onto your beautiful grains. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to start off the uh, interview by finding out how you came to live in Southern Oregon. What was your travel here? How did you come to live here?
1: Jeez, it was back in 2005. I was in the middle of a farming transition. I guess, God, was a transition? It was just the end of the season. That's what it was. Uh, I uh, was uh, growing in lots in people's backyards in Bozeman, Montana. I was selling to local restaurants and to the uh, community food co-op in Bozeman and doing deliveries by bicycle. And I was growing in my brother's backyard as well on about 5,000 square feet. That's less than a quarter of an acre. I think I made a little more than $10,000 in a very short uh, June 1st to uh, to late September growing season we had there. And so I took a, a break and was like, I I'm, think I'm going to go explore Southern Oregon. And my my girlfriend at the time had uh, just entered midwifery school. And so she came, was was in Ashland. And so I'm going to take a, trip out there for a few weeks and visit her and see what's what the scene in in Ashland is like and within 24 hours I had been offered a job working at Dagoba Organic Chocolate shipping uh getting an an order ready to ship to Japan and I remember I think we had very special package to ship to Muso was the company and it was like three pallets are four pallets maybe but it was very intricate because they wanted a little bit of this and a little bit of that and we had a uh, hot cocoa and and you know all these different diversity of different uh sorry about that div- diversity of different chocolates from you know from Peru and and Bolivia and Dominican Republic and Ghana and all these different places and so it was I ended up here. The, the, the Dagoba, the, the first organic chocolate company in the United States, and so I was working for them. And, and anyhow, uh, it came time to start making my, my way back to Montana to kick off the the growing season, and I realized that I really liked this job working for Dagoba, and it was a small uh, small chocolate company owned by uh, some amazing people, local family. Uh, that I had really good relationship with and and all our workers everybody co-workers it was just such an amazing family but I guess the answer you to your question what brought me to Ashland it was a girl
0: it was a girl <laughs> it was a girl <laughs> and the job helped you stay yep the
1: job helped me stay here so.
0: and then I take it you probably got to see some of the farming action that was happening here And probably piqued your interest to a certain extent, given all that you were doing in Bozeman.
1: Well, as a matter of fact, that that year, 2005, I came to town and my girlfriend, Jessica, she said that I should really look up uh, Eagle Mill Farm. Where we happen to be right today. So back in 2005, that was like the first time I set foot on this farm here. And that's where the Eagle Mill, Eagle Mill Farming, uh, Eagle Mill Farm Education Project was, was happening. And, uh, I learned that, that more than 2,000 kids, uh, were coming down selecting pumpkins and harvesting pumpkins and, uh, uh, making a harvest meals with the basil mm. and the tomatoes and the peppers and the zucchini and, uh, making uh, uh, pizzas in the the ovens, uh, the the kitchen down here it was full of kids, and the farm was full of kids. We had so many kids, and amazing things happening down here at, at Eagle Mill. And so that that was my first connection. And some uh, so we also part as part of the farm operation, we growing some eggplant, and God, what well, well mostly the eggplant was going up to Geppetto's restaurant. Um, which has since closed like some, maybe 10 years ago or more than 10 years ago, I think Ron and Kathleen shut down uh, Geppetto's restaurant, but uh, some of those eggplant burgers came from right here at, at Eagle Mill Farm and and uh, Eagle Mill Farm Education Project uh, eventually um, rolled over into the Rogue Valley Farm to School Program and that um, eventually that that moved on from here and Eventually, I moved a few years later moved on from uh, volunteering my time and uh, working as as uh, interim manager to start Village Farm, which was a community farm based model uh, of which we connected uh, maybe fifty or so community members to growing food. Uh, there was work trade available, a csa model some people just wanted. To just get their subscribe to get their vegetable package every week and get a box of different things. And uh, we brought the Ashland Talent Grower CSA together and that worked with about half a dozen farms in the valley. Um, including Rogue Valley Brambles, Happy Dirt Veggie Patch, Quinn and Melina Barker. I, I, uh, I can't think of the name of their farm offhand. Heck, we, we had Mushrooms in there, Sunstone, Artisan Bakery, Sheila. Uh, And Ben Carter provided the bread, uh, local artisan bread, and uh, uh, we had olive oil coming up from Rogue Valley Brambles. Her family was, uh, uh, Susan's family could get olive oil from their farm and uh, they were doing regeneratively produced uh, raised farm chickens and doing rotational chicken tractors and the whole thing and so they were like super high vibrational eggs and and then we had mushrooms being produced here locally like king strafaria and oyster and lion's mane and other mushrooms and so those were available to as add-ons to the CSA for those who uh, wanted to have those thrown in mm-hmm. in addition to all these other good things fresh eggs and and fryer chickens and uh, I know I'm leaving off. Oh yeah, lots of amazing vegetables from from small-scale growers here right in the Ashland-Talent corridor. So that was that so was you real.
0: dove p- right in.
1: Yep, yep. When we were working on getting a grant to to continue to expand the co-op and and um, and it was just it was challenging. It was there was a lot of different things that were challenging about it because the. No, no, none of the farmers wanted to show up. They, they'd show up to a meeting maybe once a month yeah. or so, but um, it was hard to get get everybody to just sit down and talk about business, about yeah. the administrative piece and the the, the business plan, and and uh, we were trying to. We actually applied for a grant for the Northwest Center for Cooperative Development, and they. Had a grant that we applied for, and I think it was a USDA value-added producer grant that that they had access to, and they were going to help us write the plan. and um, And uh, my friend Jude worked, and Sasha, and and uh, Dominic, and others worked on that as part of the early, the latter days of Village Farm before the GMO campaign, and and that just took me in a whole different direction as far as. Uh, uh, moving more and uh, focused on seed work and we had seed contracts village farm did at the very last of the days and, and that, that consumed a, a good amount of two two years, two and a half, three, three I mean then the lawsuit came after we won.
0: So when did the the when did you first hear about the GMO happening the sugar beets? when was that kind of first brought to your attention?
1: Yes, so um, Village Farm, so we had seed contracts starting in 2012, which a lot of our founders had moved to the Bay Area and to the East Coast and to Alaska and other places, and so that kind of took the energy elsewhere, let's say, and uh, I was kind of about the last farmer standing and and wasn't really sure what the vision was going to be other than I knew seeds were really important and uh, had, had you know we'd been saving seeds all through you know I've be, been saving seeds for over 20 years in in our farm operations and so I was like this is time to get more economic uh, ground under our feet and, and get serious about it and so we took on some seed contracts from some uh, small medium sized seed companies and uh, um, we were looking for another plot to be able to isolate our seeds and so a friend of mine reached out and said hey I know of this, uh, this couple that they're retired and they've traveled to Central Asia to Ladakh and some of the same places you've traveled to and spent time and." I, I, I think you guys would really have a good synergy. Uh, you should Here's their phone number. You should look them up. They're over on Normal Avenue <clears throat> right next to the Ashland Middle School and the John Muir School and the Walker Elementary School. And I was like rubbing my hands together thinking, oh, seeds and kid education. and Because I had left here the Eagle Mill Farm Education Project. But by that time it was the Rogue Valley Farm to School Program again was no longer down here Um, it it, it had moved over i think to rogue valley brambles and and dunbar farm and a couple other farms in the valley had taken on that responsibility for the to receive the kids and so i was like kind of really excited about this and i went and, and met howdy and deborah miller out on normal avenue where there was this amazing acre of land and they actually had four total acres on their whole property, but there here's this pristine one acre been sitting there for 30 years, I think he had said, untouched. It it, it was overgrown with some beautiful grasses and I, I could tell it wasn't like star thistle central. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, man, this is, I bet the soil here is incredible. So we walked the land and really had, it, there was excellent water there was talent irrigation district supplied you know we would have had more water than anything and he had a backup well and and to help transition before the TID came on like everything was just super tight and then I said well could I could we walk the rest of the land and just see what else you know I'd really like to see the whole you know the bigger picture of what's going on here and i could see that the back of the fence of the schools were all right there and and there had been a path that the kids had walked up the not the kids well just people people that lived in that neighborhood and so got uh, over to the other side of the property and uh uh howdy tells me he says uh Oh, on this plot right here, well, uh, we're just uh, uh, Syngenta's here producing some GMO sugar beets, and and we're really excited about that because we're we're a part of helping feed the world. And I was just like, Your what <laughs> on earth are you talking about? And I, we continued to walk around and just just talk about maybe a little bit of politics, but mostly just talking about okay are we gonna lease this land and what else is needed and uh what the relationship was and all and he was like just he's like I don't need any rent for the first few years if four years he threw out there and I was like wow that's really generous and he just really wants to do good like he had done and like I had done on my travels in Central Asia to to visit and hang out and and help farmers there and uh and then I just, I remembered like, wow, there's, there's glyphosate being sprayed because that's why sugar beets were produced was to be able to spray the crop with herbicide and then have the weeds die. And I, I was just like, this, this just really, man, it's just so ain't, my thing because I've traveled to over to over 50 countries that I was like at the time and I was just like I've seen these chemical companies and they're they're the kind of the devil they're shysters they're doing really bad things and they're running farmers out of business and they're polluting water and all this so I'm like I, I I told Audi as, as we were kind of partnering like I I really need to kind of I need to think about this because this this is I, I'm I don't know what to. I don't have any answers right now, and but but I really like your land and like your offer, and and uh, and that the schools are here, and so I I called uh, Syngenta, and they put me in touch with uh, their headquarters for their sugar beet operation in Longmont, Colorado, and then that led me to contact their manager here in Southern Oregon in Grants Pass, uh, who does their trialing here and. Basically, their experiments. I called the guy up, and it took a couple of days to get through to get a call back from him. And uh, 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 Jesse told me he said that they were producing uh, uh, almost 40 plots across Jackson and Josephine County of, of experimental GMO crops of sugar beets, and that that he said that he personally was using 25 different chemicals uh herbicides and pesticides on those crops and and uh and that they always have had a good rapport working with farmers and they wanted to work together with me and and uh and figure out a win-win and I told him where we had been up on Tolman in Tolman Creek Road and he's like, oh well we've got a plot up there too and I'm like what well we're we've got uh, we grew Swiss chard last year, and uh, you know, I'm, and, and at the time it was regulated under the USDA. And the USDA mm-hmm. said uh, that that by law these companies have to keep a four-mile minimum isolation distance. And here he was telling me he was on Tolman, and I'm like, well, shoots, Tolman Creek Road is only half that. If you're lucky, it's really more like about a mile and a half long from you know the kind of the top residential to the bottom residential you know it goes up there in the mountains a ways and um and you know he he was like well where else are you at and i'm like well we're leasing a piece of land over uh off of wagner creek road up up yank gulch and he's like well yeah we're we're within four miles over in talent we've got a couple of plots and and I'm like, and then we're also, we ha- at the time, we were growing on four different plots of land, and I said, well, we're uh, uh, out on Valley View, and he's like, well, we've got two plots out there, and I'm like, oh, my God, and I said, well, we have a seed contract with Fedco Seeds, uh, largest cooperative seed company in the United States, and he's like, well, yeah, we're, we're, we've got uh, sugar beets out there, too, and anyhow, I called the county, the county's like, yeah, you need to get a hold of Oregon Department of Ag, we we don't do anything about that, I called ODA, and ODA, uh, you know, spent a couple of days trying to go up the chain and talk to the right people, and they said, oh, well, we, we don't do anything with what you're talking about, those are under-regulated status and you need to call USDA, uh, APHIS, the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service and, uh, the wing of the USDA and, and I called the USDA and APHIS and spoke to the deputy director there and he's, he said, well, there's not really anything I can do, uh, but we'll we 'll look into this and uh, uh, and I can tell you right now, probably in a few months there, there this is back in early two thousand and twelve He said probably June or July of two thousand and twelve, just a few months after I discovered those GMO sugar beets, uh, they will be fully deregulated. This guy told me and uh, and this is, guy, is like one of the highest and what does that up in
0: mean, fully de- deregulated. As in, you can, can do whatever.
1: You can plant them wherever, wherever. you want, how many ever you want. Okay. If you want to talk to your neighbor, you can, but you don't have to. You could just plant because that's, you know, that's yeah. that's how, how it works. And uh, and and so um, that's when I knew right then, within a week of having all these conversations all the way to the highest level of our our the power of 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 what would protect me as a grower that it it there was nothing more that I could do I just had to basically get back on the phone with Syngenta and work things out and that's when I knew that that there was no way they were going to pull up in our narrow little valley that's not more than 2 miles Across, right, I mean, I and unless you get to Medford, there might be say a you know a larger stretch of of land, but really, the valley of Bear Creek and the Rogue and all of it are are maybe two miles across, and so that pollen that they say us experts that I had spoken to friends of mine, researchers uh people that that have dedicated their lives to breeding uh, beets and sugar beets, said that that pollen could travel. Uh, uh, 10 miles that is their recommended safe distance and so i i knew it was very clear in my mind that we had to put a ballot initiative on uh, as soon as possible in the county to ban gmo crops and let josephine county farmers and ja- jackson county farmers as many people as we could let them know that this was happening in our valley, because mm-hmm. those contracts that many other growers that i knew we're also producing seeds for contract, could in- inadvertently become contaminated by the pollen of which is patented, which basically says legally, by law, you cannot save, uh, uh, sell or replant those seeds on your farm.
0: Wow. And that is a crazy thing to think about the distance that that could go and how many different farmers that can affect. I mean that's yeah everyone
1: in the valley every every, every everyone single, in the yeah. valley that believes in a farmer's right to save his or her seeds mm-hmm. would be impacted cuz you oh you can save your seeds but but, but maybe tomorrow they get cross-pollinated with the patented seeds and You know, going down the rabbit hole as I did, uh, I, I, you know, read reports and Center for Food Safety and a number of uh, reputable uh, nonprofits, NGOs put out reports saying that there were uh, thousands of incidences of farmers that had inadvertently been contaminated by uh, 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 pollen from corn and from uh, beets and from uh, 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 canola and, you know, their you know all these different like Swiss chard and beets and corn and and uh, radishes and broccoli and and uh, turnips and a a lot of other uh, plants that are out there can all be contaminated by uh, the GMO crops of their same uh, species and there are there are many that you find in garden granted there are there are not onions or lettuce or uh, uh, things like that. But as we sit here, Simona, and look out over this, uh, this, these grains that we're growing uh, from rare parts of the world, uh, genetically engineered wheat, of which I can tell you of the heritage wheat that we have at least 15 varieties out in this field, oh. um, it, w- it was a shock in 2013 after the ballot initiative had qualified for the May 2014 ballot. Uh, we found out that genetically engineered wheat seeds had been discovered uh, that had come up in some farmer's field, and that happened in Montana and Oregon multiple times, not twice, but more than two times, like I want to say it was three, possibly four incidences had happened, and so I think, well, okay, wheat is a self-pollinator, the pollen doesn't travel very far on a wheat, but what are the odds that that our these rare non-gmo wheats could get contaminated through how did the gmo wheat get get in a farmer who was growing non-gmo wheat right well it fell off a truck somewhere and it got somehow into the seed supply and it and so that's when we picked up the pace and and we uh, got hundreds of farmers together in uh, uh 2014 and and our family farms coalition came together. Uh, uh, hundreds of farm farmers farmers came together in this valley, and we uh, successfully 66% of this valley said no to GMOs, yes to family farms. When we banned banned the, those the GMO seeds and plants from from southern Oregon, both in Jackson and Josephine County, uh, 58% of Josephine County said uh, uh, said no to the GMO and yes to being able to know that your seeds were not going to get contaminated by planting them here in southern Oregon.
0: Excellent all right well you mentioned heritage grains so I want to talk a little bit about that too because we're looking out at yeah these fields here so tell me how that came about and what what these trials are all about.
1: Yeah, so these heritage grains that we have here began um, three years ago. It was in partnership with the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. We were, uh, I don't know if commissioned is the right word, but we were encouraged to uh, take some of this work um, onto our farm and, and start growing these and selecting and seeing what ones do best for our climate in Southern Oregon and for our soils and for our culture here. And, and, of course, to uh, get to eat some of them and grind them and make bread and, and uh, uh, put them in different applications um, to, to see how they might work in our f- food culture here in Southern Oregon. And so we began, I think, with 50 uh, barleys, oats, emmer, einkorn, spelt, kamut, rye. And, and then some other really off-the-wall grains that, that are pretty rare um, that you, don't, you just can't really even go to the internet to get them because they're just not out there. Actually most of the grains that are in, in our field here uh, that we're looking at, these beautiful grains blowing in the wind, uh, they are, are not available on the internet. Vast majority, probably 80, 85% of these grains you can not find on the internet. Uh, and so we've been working and selecting, like, einkorn, which has a whole. Uh, we're working with two different somewhat holeless einkorn. And einkorn is, like, 18% protein, whereas bread might have, like, 12 or maybe 13 if you're lucky. Maybe 14 if you're, like, working with some old grains. But most uh, grains out there, they have higher, like, higher... I don't know if starch is the right word but their protein content is lower Mm -hmm. and so they don't have that gluten structure that makes like world-class breads if you've ever traveled to places like turkey or italy or france or spain you know you you know that the or eastern europe you know the breads are just incredible there and and so i'm really really excited we've been take uh, tasting small little batches and and growing them but we're growing them in trials so that we can see that with the same amount of water, same treatment, same um, soil conditions, how does this one uh, perform next to this one, next to this one, next to that one. And we're doing the same with all the barleys and with all the ryes and everything. And uh, we're doing these trials, Um, most of the barleys are naked barley, so they don't have holes on them. If you go to the store these days and buy barley, most of the barley there is hulled barley. Well, where do you get hulled barley from? Well, you go anywhere, anywhere you want. You could just go, if you can buy barley, it's likely hulled barley. Yeah. You go to say the Grange Co op or any of our local farm uh, supply stores and you get like a bag of barley to plant your fall cover crop. Those are 99.9% chance those are whole barley. What do you do with whole barley? Well, you better have a dehuller, and those <laughs> dehullers cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, and in most cases, the hole gets ripped off, it pulls part of the germ off, and so it, it exposes that grain. Again, you could apply that to Emmer and einkorn and and these other whole grains of which we are also growing, um, and we 're working towards uh, developing holeless varieties of those grains through our selection process. But those holes once they get ripped off, they expose the the seed the germ to oxygen, and that oxidizes the and r- rancidifies the makes the oils rancid in those grains and so the clock is ticking once you start to process those grains and so we we're well aware of that and we're well aware that most 99.9% of bread in stores these days have had the germ removed and so uh, as well as the bran, you take the bran out, you take the germ out and what are you left with? Kind of devoid nutrient Flour, kinda chump flour. It's just kind of chump flour. Right. <laughs> chump of, flour like that. I don't know it's <laughs> a
0: good descriptor. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say bland, but bland is not quite right. <laughs> yeah, so it's important to, to have these things and I think this is the part of nutrition that we don't understand as a culture and individuals even. Um, you know, we get we get as far as whole wheat. Yeah. i think is probably yep <laughs> what most people get to as far as as that goes yep well the importance of all of this you know not having genetically modified uh, foods and not having you know ha- having grains or having produce having things that are um, assimilated to our area especially in our changing climate as we were talking about it's changing everywhere so we're getting drier here we need to be focused on things that take less water same thing goes for seeds you've you've talked a little bit about your love and your passion for seeds how do how do you kind of I see a theme right there's this theme <laughs> of this integration of all of these things mm. um, Tell me a little bit about that and about seeds in particular, mm-hmm, your, mm-hmm. your passion around that and how, the importance. I think it's important for people to understand why this is so important.
1: I think the theme where the theme like where, where it came from, the origin was with my grandfather and grandmother in Iowa on both sides. My dad's side. Uh, granddad was a, a master gardener. And he, his gardens look so incredible, and he always did organic, never used chemicals. He used uh, any uh, weeds in the sidewalk, he'd he'd break out table salt and sprinkle it down the cracks of the sidewalk. And I remember how the grass would just turn yellow. And, oh, he had the best, oh, the best tomatoes. (laughs) absolutely like some salt and pepper grandma would slice up those heirlooms uh Uh, you know I I want to say they might have been a beef steak but that's the only thing I can or Rutgers was was a classic one dad would bring up but there were others they they had some different tomatoes and I remember how crenulated they were like the edges were irregular and Mm -hmm. and sometimes there would be cracks and these really big cores that you had to go cutting around with a paring knife to cut the core out of those tomatoes and oh, but man, were they the best tomatoes. And this is coming from a kid that was relatively picky, boy, don't even try to put okra on my plate. You know, (laughs) Mama, Chris, why don't you just eat your okra? Like, oh man, like I'd eat tomatoes any day over okra. But uh, so um, really,
0: having a taste is where that
1: the the first flavor,
0: passion the, around food and, and all, where it comes from.
1: Yep, a- always homemade. Mm-hmm. The best homemade meals. Rarely did we go out onto the restaurants. Mm. It just God. I just tried to think. It was like McDonald's. Okay, yes, mom. Occasionally. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> you kids can. But it's like restaurants. It it was like. You know, four B's or what? What do you call it? The the diner, Denny's. It was yeah. like maybe uh, that was the diner, and maybe like the cafe in in our tiny little town of 100 people back in Iowa, uh, in Randolph, Iowa. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but the granddad on the other side. Uh, so so that was the flavor. My grand grandpa Hardy and grandpa Hayful, the uh, German side uh, of my family, the Brumeyer family, uh, it was about diversity and all my uncles and my granddad and the diversity of the farms were so rich. I just think of the peacocks and the guineas and the chickens and the ducks, the geese, um, the, the eggs, the, the, you know, eating fresh chicken, uh, milking cows. Uh, we had, uh, there were pigs there that I would help them on their farm with uh, uh, cattle. There were probably not more than a couple hundred, head, maybe 150 head of cattle, ca- cows and a couple dairy, one or two dairy cows of which that we were able to produce butter mm. and had our own fresh butter. We had ice cream uh, in the summertime which was awesome when we were putting up hay, you know, putting up alfalfa hay. Granddad grew corn he grew barley and oats, and uh, some type of pea I can't remember was in there, and um, an alfalfa. And he even had buffalo on the farm, one of the first farms in the United States to to, to have buffalo on the bison on the farm. And, uh, but I would go there every summer and, and help and take the bus clear across Iowa. It was maybe a six or seven or eight hour bus ride to get me all the way to grandma's and uh but that diversity so the the flavor was on my granddad's side but of course the flavor was everywhere but but really the diversity of flavor came because of all the different life and how it was so resilient there on my granddad's 300 acre farm in on the other side of Iowa on the Mississippi Wisconsin Border uh, the Mississippi River side there,
0: so is that your inspiration for getting into farming? Have you always been a farmer or what you were doing Jeez. it in bozeman
1: <laughs> yeah I so before Bozeman, I guess backing up, you know it went through the the whole farm thing and living in Iowa and, and uh, walking beans, we used to use bean hooks and um, cut the weeds out of the bean fields and Uh, That was before glyphosate was the thing, and I was probably 14 when I first started cutting uh, sunflowers and buttonweeds and pigweed and amaranth, you know, all these weeds out of the beans. And I remember the beans were were up to my armpits or sometimes even shoulder high um, uh, because soybeans were so big back in Iowa, and they, they were not GMO at that time. Uh, And that was probably in 1984, and then by 85, say 86, 87, they got uh, this thing they called the bean buggy. And so kids didn't actually have to, to use a bean hook, a little blade on the end of a long metal stick with a handle on it, that you'd reach over two and four, you'd say take three rows left, three rows right, six rows of these massive soybeans, and you would uh, reach down and get really good about snipping off those weeds down under the canopy of the soybeans and the dew would always be on the beans and you'd always be wet and sopping wet for hours in your day and that wasn't very nice. And then they came out with the bean buggy and so we'd have either two, four, two people right, two people left of the tractor or sometimes even eight seats maybe it was three seats and three seats so six kids would be sitting on the bean buggy and we would have herbicide glyphosate that has now you know been like people have uh-huh. sued Monsanto for you know yeah. 10,000 people or uh, have received money for their cancers being caused by the glyphosate so the lawsuit said and uh, uh we would spray Glyphosate herbicide on the weeds and then the weeds would die but you wouldn't spray it on the beans because the beans would also die and so it had a purple dye in it and so we'd have fun turning around to our neighbor oh and spraying God. our our classmate you know our our fellow uh bean sprayer and 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 then um within a year later, they came, or a year or two. Anyhow, I did that for two years, spraying herbicide on beans and smelling. I know what this. I, I know what the. I know what glyphosate. I can tell you tastes like, and yeah. smells like. I, I will never forget it. And if there's anybody in this town that is spraying glyphosate, I'm probably one of the few people that can be like yeah. that right there. That's glyphosate. And then they came out with, uh, they had wicks on them so that the beans, the weeds would stick above the beans because they would grow more vigorous. And these wicks would be soaked in glyphosate and they would uh, smack the weeds and kind of, it would drip all over the weeds. But it just came out in a way that would kill the weeds and not the beans. And that didn't work out so well and so then they engineered the beans and by, I think... 1996 was the first GMO soybean that they could actually go in and spray the herbicide glyphosate on the beans and the weeds and all of it. And then the weeds would die and the beans would live. And so that's a little bit of like my background on GMOs and my understanding of, of why that that happened like that. But I, I would say it's it's, you know, and then it's like wow why are all these farmers growing monocrops And this is the late 80's um, my granddad stopped farming in in about like 90 I want to say like 90 remember when farm Mm -hmm. uh, farm aid and Willie Mm -hmm. Nelson and all these farm aid things they're trying to have big uh, concerts to try to save the family farm my granddad was one and he just decided to get out when the time when when that time came it was like wow we could either grow gmos and use all these chemicals or or we could you know could, there's there's two ways to go and one one way would virtually mean the death of the family farm and and you know 10 11 brothers brothers and sisters my mom and mom had that helped keep that farm running you know they were Kind of leaving the nest, and so there weren't a lot of kids around. It was just it was time to throw in the towel on the mm-hmm. the family farm, and so um, they they then started leasing that land out to a GMO grower, right? Or somebody to grow monocrops. Mm-hmm. So that's what was produced. I think it was just either alfalfa or corn, and that that just that's what. The way that the uncles and the cousins and that all were doing a lot of this stuff. And they just started growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And there were less and less and less farmers. And the age of farmers just got older and older. Young people like, yeah, why would I even farm? And so those folks that hung on were they were the today they're now 60s in their 60s mm-hmm. and 70s. And and so those are the folks uh, to, to this day that continue to grow the GMO crops, and and they're getting up there. So there's a big transition. We don't know what that looks like yet, but let's let's pray that we have more younger farmers coming in that are gonna Shift. get back 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 to the roots of diversity. Yeah. Because if we don't have that diversity, it's gonna spell uh, the whole problem which Mm -hmm. is more synthetic fertilizers more herbicides more quick fixes and how do we grow 10,000 like my family was on I want to say 20,000 acre uh one farm and another one of my uncles was like 10,000 acres or 8,000 acres it's like how do you do that with like two or three farmers
0: no you can't unless you're yeah,
1: My, unless you're monocrop and you just and, yeah. sit behind a tractor and nowadays it's just punch punch the GPS button and and let it lock on and now you know you you just kick back and whatever maybe you're working on your business plan or something while you're driving but you're not really driving because the the automated systems driving your tractor around and you know it 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 ain't that's it's you know what this is right here that we're looking out over this farm right here is we see Uh, 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 over 70 varieties of rare heritage grains growing and a couple of these blocks of grains, Simona, actually have over 2,000 varieties that have been thrown in onto one variety to become up with this what's called a composite of many, 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 many varieties from all over the world from gene repositories and gene banks um, have ended up and they're they're like that block that's right out there in the field mm-hmm. that you see way over there by the, uh, that's trit- triticale over there. Next to that is wheat. And that wheat is is one of those uh, uh, composite varieties. And so we're trying to get back to the roots of the seeds because the seeds are gonna show us the way. And that the GMO campaign just, it really, it made, it brought everything of my whole childhood, my whole experience working. Uh, you know, with granddad harvesting oats and, you know, those seeds. It's like, well, where, where are those those heritage seeds at? They're, that was decades ago. They're long lost, and farmers don't plant those seeds anymore. We We got to turn that around. And what we know is that we can do that with these small, what they call small grains. And we're, we're in addition to these cool weather grains. And what I think for, for people that are listening to this podcast to understand is that we have, have inputted zero water supplemental to, in one of the driest places in the United States in a historic drought. We're now, last year was like they say it was the 2,000 or the 12, what was it, the 1,200 year drought mm-hmm. in the Pacific Northwest. We're, we're a part of that drought and um we had an amazing harvest last year we we saw virtually little loss in our yield due to lack of water we planted them in the fall rain any moisture any snow that fell grew them up and voila here we are again this year granted we've had a little bit more rain but we're still in a uh, they're saying, I just was looking at a report this morning, uh, uh, Immigrant Lake is like at 15%, not 100%, but 15%, way, 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 way low. Uh, Howard Prairie Hyatt Lake are both like like 18 and 20% mm-hmm. full, I know. like 80% low. It's just, it's hard to even comprehend this. And so we don't know what the future holds, but... I know that we need to be doing this work and it all begins with the seed because what I can tell you is from the GMO campaign, we know that they have, if I can say this on air, they have literally, the biotech companies and um, the land grant institutions that have supported this work, uh, who who have used taxpayer dollars to do this, and then hand their product over to the biotech companies to make the make the billions of billions of dollars that they have done. They have pissed away our future for decades. This the best that they could do was come up with uh, herbicide tolerant crops that we douse and we eat and feed our children or it makes its own pesticides that's as good as GMO could ever the best of Monsanto, DuPont, Dow Chemical, BASF the German company buyer who bought Monsanto the best that they could do is that yeah. isn't that just disgusting it's it's really sad and so I that's why I'm that's why I have no question in my mind that this work of the seeds it's really we got to get these seeds into the hands of the people Mm -hmm. and if we can do that and we can incentivize we can encourage farmers to be working on solutions that are real and not like pumped up on the market commodities monocrops you know what are now destroying the gulf of mexico with the dead zones that are now glyphosate is being tested in rainwater all over the world. Uh, Parliamentarians in Europe, 100% of the parliamentarians that took they they gave a glyphosate they all agreed to take a urine test. They all came up with glyphosate in their urine. We've done the same for our own uh, legislators in Washington D.C. I think the report was 92% of them came back with glyphosate in their urine. You think they're all eating Doritos chips or you think some of them could be eating organic I can tell you in Europe where you don't find a lot of glyphosate being used because they've already banned it it's like it's there it's in people
0: yeah
1: we we must do something about this and and so that's that's why we're doing the work of no till and we're doing the work of regenerative we're using mulches we're using low water input uh, or no water inputs. And uh, these have had, uh, this. I can tell you this soil right here where you see these uh, 60 plus varieties of grains have uh, had no fertilizer added to the soil for, um, for many years. I can tell you yeah. probably six to seven years before somebody may have put manure on this soil. And look okay. at these grains. Yeah.
0: That's impressive So how would you say The average individual Can get involved Or participate Or make choices That support This kind of work And and a betterment of Food Is what it comes down to I mean seeds are what brings us food (laughs) You know (laughs) So you say seeds And I think people Oh I don't I'm not a farmer I don't I'm not a gardener even I don't have a green thumb What does that matter Well seeds become our food that we eat mm. and i think that's the important thing to remember so how what would you say for somebody who is maybe not a gardener or not a farmer
1: yeah let 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 people know let people with land know but it's not just letting people You know, I have landowners contacting me uh, many times a week asking me if I need land or can I use a little more land Um, because they know that I already have land and and they're like, okay, well, we've got another acre here. Could you use it? I think what we really need right now, Simona, are more farmers. Um, uh, You know, it's like how to get these precious seeds into the hands of farmers it's really, it's more about the farmer than it is the landowner. Cause I, I, I'm like, you know, I'm having this conversation. I'm like, oh yeah, you, you you gotta plant this wheat here. This is the most incredible, it's high protein wheat. It, it produces so much biomass that you can use as mulch. You can uh, incorporate that back into the soil and it'll help with the climate resilience of, of that person's land and 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 they're like, well, I, but I don't have a tractor, and I'm not really a farmer, and but I really want to get some of these seeds, and I, you know, they're just like they They're like, what can I do? Yeah. Like, well, do you know of a farmer, farmer that would like that you could give gift some land calling to? All
0: farmers, <laughs> calling all young folks who are interested. <laughs> in the well, and I think this is part of your work too. You've talked about with kids. and and children and teaching them and getting them inspired in the garden, inspired in the, in that realm. And I think a lot of kids aren't, Um, that's not something that, I mean, we're lucky here that kids are, have access, but you know, coming from the Bay Area, there's a lot of kids that maybe have access to a community garden at best. And so farming is a whole other ball game. So it's, it's how do we get, yeah, that interest at the young, younger years, younger ages.
1: Well, they, 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 these younger ages tend to kind of care or understand the climate crisis. Yes, that they do. And, and so once you start talking about, like, uh, out here in the field right now, I can tell you we have... Five different species of brassicas that are flowering. And, uh, you know, we have uh, uh, two kales, or we have one kale, we have radishes, we have turnips, we have arugula, and we have cabbage, all that are producing seeds right now. And these are seeds that we are saving year after year after year. Not only um, are they adapting to climate and need less water because we're basically we we have put no water granted this may be an unusual year because we've had uh, a a decent amount of but there, there, uh, water here in the past couple two three weeks that have kind of picked up the slack but really, there's so many years when I remember we have not watered any of these crops, and you mm-hmm. like say to go to the commercial whatever seed grower or even any of these many of these crops that we're growing. They'll put water down just to try to increase their yield and or maximize their profits or whatever it is. They're trying to like, you know, do a right thing. And we're just, we're, we're putting a little here at our farm where our model is to put more faith into the seed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and by pushing our seeds, we can then see what plants do better. Yeah. and not and so I think the light at the end of the tunnel for me is to get the, these youth who are excited about this to uh, uh, like they care about the climate but they don't have a lot of, they're not a Bill Gates with lots of money or they're mm-hmm. uh, you know maybe they're but it's like those who are called to be with the earth this is something that they can do is they can work with the seeds and so my hope is how they can help is to to build a relationship with a seed
0: All right. and if i remember correctly you have a place where people can buy your seeds
1: yes Correct. yes we yes. have a, a, a growhardyseeds.com on our website yes and we do have some of these heritage grains up online um our so we actually have a seed library too And so people can contact me at growhardyseeds at gmail.com or through our website. They can reach us through the website too and uh, uh, send me an email and I can send them a list of all these amazing grains that we have been growing here for the past um, uh, three, four, five. I mean, we've been growing grains for many years, but... Um, we've really been ramping up the grain trials um, since we started our partnership with the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance three years ago, and um, and so a lot of these grains are not on our website, and they're only in the seed library, uh, of of which um, again we're working mostly with local people um, to to get these grains out and. And I'm so excited um, actually that we have a dozen farmers that we're, have been working with for the past couple of years to expand these grains. And uh, uh, some are producing, many are producing on a quarter of an acre to up to two acres of some of these varieties. And understand, Simona, that uh, Fry Family Farm uh, that is growing on the mm-hmm. biggest plot of two acres of okay. three different grain varieties: two wheats, heritage wheats, and and one heritage barley. Uh, a purple, a beautiful purple barley, a high anthocyanins, you know, like which is high, like the what blueberries. Why, why mm-hmm. you eat blueberries? Uh, for the nutrient density mm-hmm. is what is in this barley uh, that is going to be harvested here in about two weeks. But we started with. All of these seed varieties that are in the hands of all these growers here locally, with roughly about a tablespoon of seed. All right. And um, and it's so exciting to mm. know that this year we're gonna probably have uh, more than ten thousand pounds of wow. seed produced from what magic? started as a tablespoon of, of well, well the magic three of tablespoons a seed. of seed. But here. still,
0: that magic of a seed, right? I mean, I think that's the. The thing that, is, that I think everyone can relate to is that you plant a seed, and what that one seed does is magic, because it grows exponentially. So yes. It's the bad, Whether it's one tablespoon or three tablespoons, it is still an exponential growth.
1: I think that we're gonna be planting amaranth uh, tomorrow, and uh, amaranth is such a miracle in and of herself. Um, we're growing some varieties uh, from uh, a friend, an indigenous friend down in Guatemala, and uh, those plants get get seven and eight feet tall. And not only can mm-hmm. you eat them like spinach or chard mm-hmm. when they're young, um, and you, you we we just pick the whole plant, and that's our thinning. So. Amaranth is a very small seed and it tends to just come out of the cedar in copious quantities, but we we harvest handfuls in copious quantities. And we take that amaranth uh, plant and we chop the roots off and maybe take some of the stem off to where it's nice and tender at the top and just put some olive oil in the pan and saute it with a little balsamic vinegar and, and maybe a little tamari and a little salt and pepper, and they're just so delicious. And, but the, the miracle in the amaranth is not only can you eat the greens, unlike the wheat, I guess you could juice the wheat juice if that's your thing, um, or the barley juice or the emmer or the einkorn juice might be an interesting one, um, but the amaranth produces literally one million seeds on one plant. Wow. One million. I mean, the average might be like a quarter of a million, but I've seen some amaranths that I'm like certain that one million seeds was produced on, on that plant. That's and, incredible. Uh, oh, you want to talk about yeah. resilience and, and like, uh, how do you call it, the attitude, yeah. which you, nothing will stop me. And,
0: Amaranth is... And, oh,
1: it, it, and, and it, you know, it came from the origin, uh, the origin, the heartland of the Central America in Guatemala, where um you know the Spaniards uh when they came in the conquest to take over the the Aztecs mm-hmm. they had the amaranth the amaranth was so like vital to their survival because of everything that I just mentioned mm-hmm. you could get your vitamin C and eat your greens and get your calcium and your manganese and magnesium and iron and all these other vitamins and minerals that the and protein uh, but in the greens but then you could also eat the seeds of which there's all these amino acids and um, uh, and protein and lysine it's rich in so many different essential amino acids and but you you, once you start going that route you know we 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 have been growing quinoa and selecting quinoa for many years and uh, we've got a variety that does really well through a uh, hundred and sixteen degrees we had uh quinoa that lived yeah. through that last year <laughs> Wow and yeah. flowered and produced like abundantly and it's we, we we we've got i think we've got a couple champions of of quinoa, and sure we 're adding and growing new varieties of quinoa, but it 's like these two varieties of quinoa are like the powerhouse for what they say can 't be done years ago, people told me, oh you know you you can 't really do quinoa and so it 's too hot. Oh, you're supposed to grow quinoa. I know it needs higher altitude. Oh, it needs more water. It needs more this, more that. We basically have proven all that to not be true Excellent. necessarily. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. maybe it depends upon their variety that they were talking about. Say,
0: it depends on the variety. Yep. Well, I'm looking for it. I'm letting everyone know here. When you uh, see this post on Facebook, when I put it on, I'm gonna put some of the pictures of where we are, so you can actually get the visual of all of this. Cause it's nice for me to sit here
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
0: look out on all of it. But it's it'll be nice for listeners to also get on my Facebook page and check it out, so you can see pictures.
1: <laughs> yay, yay! All right. And you should yeah, make, maybe guys uh, take a couple snaps of the food forest. We have a food forest here too, if you can believe oh, yeah. it or not so i was involved in a food forest at the bellevue grange and the bellevue grange um i did the design for that like last god was it january and realizing that i might be the one that I would have to do all the work to get it implemented and and uh fortunately i wasn't the one that had to do all the work but it's been a handful taking it all on but on the 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 tail end of that food forest at Bellevue Grange of which we have over a hundred plants from all over the place of every family, every pollinator support, uh, berries and nuts and um, fruits and all kinds of different different types of, you know, gumi berries and goji berries and uh, mulberries, uh, pluries, cherries, apricots, jujube, uh, kiwis, two different varieties of kiwi, passion fruit. God, what am I forgetting? Apples and pears and plums, multiple varieties from uh, varieties that friends of mine have actually sourced or done the breeding on or done the grafting on. And, and so really excited about that. And, and down here at Eagle Mill, where I've been since 2005, um, the food forest that that's going in up here, uh, we're, it's a work in progress, but we already have more than a hundred plants of currants, red currants, black currants, uh, jostaberrys and all those other things that I just mentioned, mulberries and persimmons and you know strawberries. We have chestnuts. We don't have space up at the Bellevue Grange Garden because it's only a quarter of an acre of city lot, so yeah. there's no place to put a chestnut that would probably <laughs> take up a quarter of an acre in and of itself because they're so gigantic. <laughs> but we have some American chestnuts, of which you may know uh, billions of them have died from uh, the disease, uh, the blight that killed the American, the Native American chestnut, endemic to, say, central U.S. and eastern U.S. Um, we have some of those seeds here in southern Oregon. And we have one American chestnut that made it. We lost the rest of them last year in the 116 degree mm-hmm. temperatures that we had down here. They they basically just didn't make it. Um, but we have more seed from my friend up in Washington. And so he has assured us they are purebred American chestnuts. So, um... And so we're going to be planting those, and hickory, and uh, Heinz walnut, which is endemic, native to northern California, southern Oregon. Uh, that we sourced some seed from here in the valley, and those are harder nuts to crack, but they are delicious. And we've been doing <laughs> <Worth> nut, <it. laughs> we've been doing nut tasting, and I, I it was, we just didn't, I, it was too much to risk to try to do. I wanted to do a nut tasting last year. But we ended up having a little small little collection of people that came together and I took notes and said, okay, this one came from this block over in Talent and this one came from Central Point and this one came from South Ashland and uh, uh, one of which has been cut down. It was cut down due to development in the city of Ashland. It was a heritage walnut. 135 years old. I went and counted the rings on that tree. I counted at least 135 rings of this beautiful black walnut. Heinz walnut from, you know, again, endemic to this region. And it was so sad. I tried to stop it be, from being cut and bring awareness to it. and And it was just the city said, nope, the developer has the rights to. They did a tree study on it and they said that it maybe has a disease. Of course, they cut it and it was like perfectly fine. We we hear these stories over and over of people, you know, they get the experts and then the experts render the report to the city and then they still go in and, uh, they, oh yeah, there's a disease. They did that down on the plaza some years ago. They cut some really old trees down there. Oh, yep, it's disease. It's going to die anyhow. And lo and behold there was nothing you know they, they came back after they cut it and they're like yeah it wasn't really as bad as we thought it was and really kind of kind of um I don't know society is we're everything is so janky you know it's just really so disconnected in so many ways and that you know ask me why doing this work and the diversity and it's like because we have to show people, the, like this pollinator hedge that's right here on the edge of our mm-hmm. field that we've had for years and we keep adding to it and it mm-hmm. it, it virtually self sows, and all we gotta do is put a little water on there and love it up mm-hmm. a little bit and a little weeding and I look at a lot,
0: it. I see a lot of borage. I love it's one of my oh, favorite
1: Look at all the pollinators, yeah. like from here you can look over there and just see it loaded to the ground with every, you know, leaf cutter bees and uh, mason bees and every species of bumbler bee and butterflies and you know but the butterfly bush that we have we see that hedge down there they're going to be loaded with monarchs and swallowtails here soon and
0: yeah it's a beautiful spot and we need it this is what we need
1: yep and well, hopefully the homeowners and people will take Take this into their own yeah. gardens and
0: well get some seeds on your <laughs> on your site so they can start planting them I'll have yep. to add you into my my gifting. I gift seeds as part of my spring thing that I give to my clients. And Ooh, this year yay. was uh, zinnias from uh, Ben and Christina's farm. Okay,
1: yep, yep. Uh, he grows zinnias out there. Yep. He's a really oh, good.
0: I g- had awesome. a chance of frolicking in their zinnia fields. And, oh, oh my goodness. I love zinnias. That's awesome. My grandmother always had them, and I've always grown them in my garden. And
1: mm, so, That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yay. That's
0: among my favorite. Well, I want to wrap up the interview. I want to just ask one last question because I love kind of just hearing what um, some of the things that you love about living here and some of the places that you visit or, you know, we talked a little bit about the vineyard next door and, and maybe some of the places you just love to spend your time where you love to be in this area.
1: Yeah, um, I love hiking. Um trail running I'm still kind of doing a little bit of that I used to do the ultras you know these big insane 50 60 70 mile runs and in um, events and so kinda of doing a little less of that these days and doing more backpacking I like to get up into the into the uh, mountain lakes wilderness area and uh, um, the Trinities and the marbles and um, and i like to go to the coast and just like like to hike i like to mushroom hunt in in those key times of the year and yeah you know i tend to just get folks together and like do dinner together and make make really yummy farm goods from the farm and of course other seed growers hang out with them and we you know it's like well don't you just produce seeds it's like well no we got to grow the <laughs> grow the food first and then then it goes to seed eventually so it's it's like such a it's like really the the best thing that that people mm-hmm. could be doing these days is getting into growing seeds because you got to grow food and yeah. food they're saying is there's going to be some hiccups coming down the pipe here with the uh, food security they're saying it's it's inevitable that that we're going to have some some big challenges ahead so but yeah I I like to I like to go out to eat but I'm I mean I like the Taj uh, the Indian food I'm a real that's my soft spot Uh, you know I love Ethiopian like say going up to Portland but around here we don't have such delights so uh, mostly like going to Taj and and uh and sauce and uh you know occasionally get 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 uh, make those allowances you know I'm on a pretty tight budget here with doing all this work with our grain trials we we need there's so much support that's needed right now you know I'm not a trust funder uh, you know independent wealthy you don't really get any family money so all the money that uh that I earn from landscape and and uh, uh doing rodent control organic rodent control that I do goes right back into Getting us the tools and the materials that we need to carry out these grain trials, and pay for gas to get me to go visit Fry Family Farm or drive up to friends' Farms to see how their grain trials are doing and and uh, doing selections and just keep this work. It's it's a never-ending uh, uh, love that that just it just doesn't stop, you know. Because mm-hmm. Mother Nature, it's like you know when most farmers are taking the winter off, I like. You know, it's like, well, I, I, I guess I do kind of take December off, but we, we usually plant our grains in, in late November, early December, and uh, hoping to get up to Montana to be with my niece and nephew and spend some time this winter. But um, but mostly it's like we're weeding in January mm-hmm. and, and February and mulching in February and March, and it's, uh, uh, you know. Now it, we're
0: in full on
1: and yeah and there 's like the compensation is pretty pretty slim these days because we 're not really selling these we 're just trying to uh, get the seed library built up because the seed library is really important for um, for the future, and without these heritage grains and other farmers to be able to have the tools, the tools are the seeds really mm-hmm. and so if these farmers have those tools they can take this variety that say didn't do well for us down here in southern Oregon but it might do good for them in Roseburg or it might do good for them over in the Illinois Valley where uh, the weather patterns are a little different over there or Eugene or uh, uh, you know down south in Siskiyou County and and you know wherever so we're that's why we're 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 trying to uh, do you know keep the seed library up and running and and continuing you know going from a tablespoon of seed to last year might have been a quart bag of seed and then you take that quart bag of seed out and then maybe that will yield you. Uh, two five-gallon buckets full of mm-hmm. seed, like like say a hundred pounds of seed. Yeah. And now we're and at now the you're... stage where we gave uh, Fry Family Farm last year those forty pounds of grains, and they're going to be producing uh, thousands of pounds of seed. So that again is the vision that mm-hmm. that we're holding is is just to continue this work. And I should mention as a side note here, this isn't just what you're looking at. Diversity. You can see okay, look, there's a little borage growing here, a little there, but there's oh yeah, you got some poppies in there too. But Simona, down in between the grains here, you can actually see uh there are flax and lentils and mustards planted down under the cover of these grains. Okay. No irrigation water added they are in full flower right now and some of them have already flowered they're going to be sending out little bitty bits of seed that we're going to be doing selection for dry farming and these are rare varieties from Central Asia where I have traveled and spent time where their lentils, their precious lentils that have carried them through lentils come from Central Asia Mm -hmm. like globally, like that's where they originated as weeds growing on the mountainside and so the people that have subsisted on lentils and barley and wheat, and mm, maybe some chickpeas, and and then you know maybe they incorporate goat or cheese or yogurt into their diets there, in Ladakh and Pakistan and the Hunza Valley places where I've spent time, but the uh, industrial food system, the back to what we were talking about, the monocrops uh, that they are say growing in Pakistan and India and. And, of course, China, uh, they're growing them on thousands of acres. Mm -hmm. And they're bringing in cheap, subsidized uh, uh, corn and rice from India, which is displacing the barley and the wheat and the lentils. Mm -hmm. And they're just getting basically cheap, commoditized food that are coming over these mountain passes and down into these villages. And so the youth no longer saving the seeds and these lentils very well could go extinct in where they came from. Wow. And so we have actually a whole 100 foot bed of those lentils here that we're trying to expand uh, the That's seed radical. supply on. And um, among about four other varieties of lentils we have planted down under here. And, and f- if there's a variety of flax that we did and we're growing uh, uh, buckwheat and quinoa and sorghum. Mm-hmm millet and corn and uh, uh, rice we did 25 different varieties of upland dry land rice not paddy rice right. like they're you know you go to the co-op and what do you see in the bulk bins that's paddy rice yeah. and it comes from Lundberg family farm down in Chico California and they produce it on thousands of acres but they have been put on notice that it's drought and so they're basically going to have right. to shut down their rice operation in northern California and I've I've heard they're moving it to Texas.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: But we're growing dry, yeah, different, types different, different types
0: rice rice, of rice, and yeah. doing so the selection. Adapting. Adapting to what's happening.
1: Got it. We got to become more, we got to listen to the signs, the warning. They say that we could uh, slip into a 30-year drought, that it just doesn't, you know, we could get almost no rain at all for 30 years. Could you imagine spending the last of your life if you're like 40 in your yeah. 40s the last days of your life could be spent in a chronic you know something crazy like like what we've been seeing but continuing and we don't want that but we want to be prepared for it because we love our valley and we love southern oregon and yeah. we got to we got to make sure that we got a backup plan
0: well thank you chris I really appreciate all the knowledge that you've shared. Mm. really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: You betcha, Simona.
0: Thank you. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week. Um, We'll be back again next week. This podcast is produced by Simona Fino and co-produced by James Dedakis and Jaded Media. Original music by Samuel Lawrence.